This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and now on iTunes too. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer of Publishers Weekly, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio, on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with author Lori Duran about her new book, Raising My Rainbow, Adventures in Raising a Fabulous Gender Creative Son. Then PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot will tell us about recently re- released profit numbers from six major publishers, soon to be five. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So this is the, the last week of the August slump here. Not, not all that much new. Um, but in fiction, we've got a couple of titles that uh, hit the list for the first time this week. Um, the first is How the Light Gets In by Louise Penny. That's number two on our fiction list, uh, or our fiction hardcover list. Uh, we gave it a starred review saying that complex characterizations and sophisticated plotting distinguish Penny's masterful ninth novel. She's also the winner of the Agatha Award, named for Agatha Christie. Um, and this is continuing a series about uh, an a inspector in Paris uh, who's uh, abandoning his mentor now, going on his own way, and um, continuing to investigate murders and other crimes. Uh, we say Penny impressively balances personal courage and faith with heartbreaking cho- choices and monstrous evil. Um, they did a first printing of 300,000 copies for this, so they were certainly expecting it to do well. And with it at number two on our list, uh, really not even far behind the number one spot, which continues to be J.K. Rowling, a.k.a. Robert Galbraith, um, I, I think that confidence was well placed. Indeed. Uh, on the nonfiction side, I'm intrigued by Naoki Higashida's The Reason I Jump from Random House. It, jump, it debuts on the list at number 21. Written by Naoki Higashida when he was only 13, the book explains the often baffling behavior of autistic children and shows the, the clear depth of imagination, humor, and empathy that autistic kids possess, and also makes clear with great poignancy how badly they need our greater understanding. The book was translated by Cloud Atlas author David Mitchell and his wife, and it jumps onto the list at 21, and I expect it will jump further. Yeah, probably. Um, it's definitely an interesting story behind that one, that it was first written in Japanese, but it was really written in the sort of symbolic language, um, and, and then from there taken from Japanese into English and uh, I don't usually point people at Amazon but I will say that the Amazon page for the book has an interesting interview with David Mitchell about the translation process and what it was like and uh, the author is now 20 years old and he's an advocate in Japan for understanding of autism Well I look forward to seeing the media cover this book and I hope to see him on tour and uh, hopefully on the shows as well uh, pitching the book, this should be very interesting That would be interesting 
And finally, in the fiction list, uh, at number seven, we have Bones of the Lost by Kathy Reichs. Um, she's a bestseller, and she draws on her experiences touring with the USO in Afghanistan for her 16th novel, uh, which features forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan. Uh, and this is a character who's appeared in her books before, most recently in Bones Are Forever. So she's sort of turning out one of these every year. And I love the idea of a forensic anthropologist, someone who, who really digs up bones and tries to understand the stories behind them, as uh, anthropologists generally do, but particularly with this, this forensic approach, this very sort of scientific approach. And uh, you know, there's a, a couple of cases in here uh, where the bone expert concludes that the death of an unidentified girl was caused by foul play rather than a hit and run, as was previously suspected. Um, and you know, there's a, a sort of subtext there that uh, the, they suspect the girl was an undocumented immigrant as well as possibly being a junkie and a sex worker. So this is someone whose death would uh, possibly not be investigated very closely at all um, were it not for, for somebody pushing for it. And in that case, uh, in this case, it's the anthropologist. Uh, and also, uh, there's plenty of detailed descriptions of forensic examinations, but it's Brennan's passionate and personal involvement that provides the excitement in this masterful tale. And again, that is a quote from Publishers Weekly's review, and it's number seven on our fiction bestseller list. You had me a forensic anthropologist, but you sold me, definitely. Yeah, looking for that looks book. pretty cool. All right, and that's pretty much it for this week. I think we're, we're now in September, and we'll start to see those big fall books coming out. So I'm looking forward to seeing next week's list. Indeed. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Laura Duran will tell us how she supported her younger son's love of sparkly pink tutus. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Laurie Duran on the line. She's the author of Raising My Rainbow, Adventures in Raising a Fabulous Gender-Creative Son. Thank you so much for joining us, Laurie. Thank you for having me. So uh, you have two kids, Chase and CJ, and they have very different personalities. Will you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. Well, Chase is our oldest son, and he's 10. He's getting ready to go into the fifth grade, and he likes Legos and science and inventing things and playing flag football and being on his iPad playing various games. And then we have CJ, who's six and a half. He's getting ready to go into the first grade. And CJ, as he explains it, is a boy who only likes girl things and wants to be treated like a girl. So he's really into Monster High, painting his nails, wearing, dancing around in his skirts and going on the trampoline to watch his skirts bounce as he bounces, and um, wants to be a makeup artist when he grows up. Um, so, so CJ still uses him and, uh, and he as pronouns and uh, still thinks of himself as a boy. Yes, he prefers the masculine pronouns. Actually, when people use feminine pronouns with him, he corrects them and, get, and gets upset. So he knows he's a boy, and he likes his boy body, and he doesn't want to change that. He doesn't want a girl body or to be a girl. He just wants to like everything that girls like and be treated like a girl. Did CJ always go by his initials, or is that uh, a, a gender-neutral name? Uh, so is it part of your effort to give CJ lots of room for self-expression? or You know, some people in our family have always called him by his initials. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess I've actually never even thought about that, but it is gender-neutral. 
And, you know, how, how have relatives and friends and teachers been? Have they been respectful of CJ's gender expression? And should you have to do a lot of educating? We do tend to have to educate teachers a lot. They're usually not used to, most of them say they've never had a gender nonconforming child in their class, which probably isn't the case, but that child probably wasn't out. Mm-hmm. as gender non-conforming. So teachers, I found, are very open once we explain it to them, and I can provide them with lots of information that I found on my own. So teachers are usually pretty open to it. School administration, like the administration level of principal or vice principal or superintendent, aren't always as open. Um, I think we're seen as a little bit of a liability. And then relatives, some relatives have surprised us with how amazing they've been, and then some have surprised us with how disappointing that they can be. And you mentioned a lot of information you found on your own. How did you go about educating yourself? Well, that's part of the reason why I started the blog. So when CJ first started playing with girl toys or wearing girl clothes around the house, I think like any other mom from my generation, I went straight to the Internet to look for answers. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any mommy blogs about raising a son like this, an effeminate son. And then I went to popular parenting websites, and I couldn't find any sections on those websites that were dedicated to raising a son like mine. So then I just went to Google and started Googling every phrase or you know sentence that I could think of, and I couldn't find anything. So I felt like I found this gaping hole in the Internet So I was complaining to my brother and my friends about how I couldn't find any information about raising, you know, a little boy who was a girl at heart, and they said, well, you should start it. You should start a blog like this. You can't be the only person looking for information like this. And so after months and months of thinking about it and hesitating and procrastinating, I did it. I started my blog, Raising My Rainbow. And how did the blog turn into a book? So about a year after the blog had been up, so I'd been writing for a year, and I'd been writing twice a week. And it was around um, the holiday times. I was just exhausted, and I thought, you know what? I've done it for a year. I think I'm going to stop. And my husband said, you can't stop now. Hmm. You can't. You absolutely cannot stop now because I was getting a lot of feedback and a lot of readers. And um, that's right around the time when I was approached to write a book. An agent actually found me through someone had left uh, a link to my blog on a popular pop culture website. She found it through a link there, and, and then she contacted me. And um, on CJ's fifth birthday, exactly, is when I signed my book deal. Very nice. You say CJ is a, a, a boy who likes girl stuff, and he, he wants to be treated like a girl, but can you talk a little bit about how that identity emerged and how maybe it's shifted over time? Yeah, definitely. You know, gender is a fluid thing, which I didn't know to begin with, but um, so he's been fluid throughout um, the last couple years. So he originally, it all started because he found a Barbie that I had in the back of my closet. And up until that point, and he was two and a half, up until that point, he had just been getting hand-me-downs from his older brother. So it was trains and trucks and mm-hmm. balls and things like that. And he would kind of play with things, but not be overly, like he was never it, going through a phase like our older son had, where, where it was Thomas the Tank Engines or Bob the Builder, or, you know, he went through these really distinct phases of things that he liked and CJ never went through those he was certainly a happy child but nothing like really spoke to him until he found that Barbie and I mean she did not leave his grip for weeks and months and she (laughs) still have Barbies all around the house now so that and then about 
six months later, right around there, is when he started wearing my clothes around the house, or he would wear one of my tank tops as a dress and mm-hmm. play around in my heels. So that's how it all started, and we didn't know what it meant. And we naively thought his effeminacy was going, was meant that he was going to be gay. And because I didn't know the differences between sex, gender, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so, um, then we realized he was gender nonconforming, and there have been times when we thought he is transgender, but we really don't know. We, you know part of this parenting journey is getting used to not having the answers. And so in the opening of the book, you describe him changing out of masculine school clothes and into feminine dress-up clothes when he gets home. Uh, And he obviously does this with a a sigh of relief. And by the end of the book, CJ is experimenting with wearing feminine clothes to school, wearing a skirt or little mermaid pajamas. What shifted your feelings on whether to allow or encourage him to wear feminine clothes out of the house? Well, and he does, he largely self-edits. He likes to wear the most effeminate things from the boys' section. So luckily for me, those things are usually on sale because no other boy wanted to wear them. But they'll be super skinny jeans Mm -hmm. or purple-pink T-shirts, V-necks, polos. um, And he does wear girl shoes and girl socks. But every once in a while, he, you know, feels a little bit more daring and likes to wear his girl clothes out of the house. What we really had... We had to come to terms with what was bothering us when he did that, when he dressed like a girl or wore an item of girl clothing out of the house. And we realized it was we were afraid what other people would think or say. And as soon as we realized that, we couldn't stand that about ourselves because we can't parent our child based on trying to make other people and strangers feel comfortable. We have to try to make our child feel comfortable. We can't worry about what other people think. And when you parent based on worrying about what other people will think, I think you start to do it all wrong. Hmm. How have CJ's own friends and kids his own age uh, handled this? Well, a lot of his friends are family friends that we've all raised. You know, they're our friends from college, and we're all raising our children together, and they see each other all the time, and CJ is CJ to them. They don't know any different. At one point, he'd been growing his hair out long, and he wanted it, he wanted it short like a boy, so I took him, and we got his hair cut, and they were really disturbed, these little kids that he had grown up with, because that wasn't CJ. CJ has long hair like a girl. So they only know CJ as CJ, and they love him. And he's met all of his friends at school are girls, and he came out to them. It just happened to be on National Coming Out Day this last October, and he told them, I'm gender nonconforming, I like girl stuff, and I want to be, I want to be your friend, I want to be one of the girls. And they were all like, okay, because they're five, and they're so innocent. That's wonderful. And how did he decide he wanted to be a makeup artist? <laughs> well, for a long time, he wanted to do hair. So he wanted to be a hairstylist. That was for about a good year or two. And so we bought him a mannequin head for Christmas with real hair so that he could, you know, that I would obviously help him, but he could use the curling iron or the flat iron on and he could do her hair. But then he realized she had a face and he wanted to do her makeup as well. And so... You know, we bought this mannequin head so that he could practice doing hair, and that's when he discovered he wanted to be a makeup artist instead. Now, the subtitle to your book says these are your adventures, and that makes raising a gender-creative kid sound kind of challenging but fun. But on the other hand, at the end, you say parenting is hard as hell. So um, tell us a little bit, what are the best and the hardest parts of being one of CJ's parents? Well, that's one thing. We had to also get to the point where we saw the fun in it because for a while it didn't feel like fun. And I don't ever want my children to know that it's hard to parent them or not fun. 
But there are definitely challenges, the worries for his safety. There are a lot of people in this world who would like to harm him, either, you know, just emotionally or physically mm-hmm. for being the way that he is. So I worry constantly about his safety. That's a huge struggle for both for me and my husband. Um, I worry about people just trying to dull his sparkle. He's really, really a fun, great, creative kid. And I worry about those people who won't cherish that and um, find it to have the value that we do. So it's a struggle. I worry about how rude people can be to him. And I don't want anyone to tear him down. And then the adventures are, it really is fun. Once you step back and you let go of a lot of the anxiety, he's so much fun. He has different walks. He has a rock star walk and a fashionista walk, and he likes to do his different walks and twirl and, like I said, jump on the trampoline to watch his skirt flip up and hula mm-hmm. hoop. And for him, like life is really as it should be for any six-year-old. It's really about having fun. Do you think life gets easier or harder uh, for you or for CJ as he becomes a teen and then an adult and... I think it gets harder. That's another reason why I'm so set on having fun and seeing the joy in it now because as with any child, you start to lose that as you grow up. And so, yeah, I worry about teasing and bullying especially. I know, you know, I was kind of dreading him going into high school, but I've heard that middle school can be even worse these days. So. I worry with the start of each new school year, it's new worries. He's going into first grade, and now I'm already starting to worry about going into the upper grades of elementary school and then junior high and high school. And um, is he going to, I don't know where you live, but is he going to be able to stay with the same friends throughout that, or is he going to have to keep shifting into new social groups and sort of coming out again and again? He should be able to stay with the same group of friends. It's hard. We go to a very, very large elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bigger than some high schools, and so he won't always have the same peer group in his class, but he'll be able to see them out on the playground and at lunch, and hopefully, you know, a few of them each year will be in, in his class. And, you know, people like you are putting a lot of information out there now about being accepting, being supportive. Do you feel that, um, in general, broader cultural approaches, social approaches to gender expression are, are going to change and improve? Do you, do you see the world trending more towards acceptance and support in general? I hope so. I mean, there's definitely a new civil rights movement going on as far as LGBTQ rights are, and and that gives me great hope. Also, the fact that people are willing to hear our story and and other stories like ours gives me hope that right now people are noticing them. I hope that it encourages a, a long going conversation so that people can get educated and that people realize that gender is fluid and if the entire world if everyone was either hyper masculine or hyper feminine you know this would be it, it would be a boring place the people are in the middle and that's where um and that's where more, most people feel comfortable is more towards the middle than either end of the spectrum what do you hope to accomplish with the book is this more for you and for your family and for getting this out or do you, do you hope to raise awareness about this No, I don't feel like it's more for my family. I feel like it's more for families who are raising kids like this and also for adults who were children like CJ and they weren't accepted in their home. I'm hoping so that they see that there's hope for this next generation and so that other parents like us who are raising kids like CJ who are gender nonconforming, you know, have something to read so that they don't feel so alone. It can you can feel really, really alone when you're raising a child like this. So, and I'm hoping to raise awareness to make the world a better place for CJ and Chase, but not only for them, for all kids who are growing up now. 
And how does Chase interact with CJ? Is it the same for him that he just, uh, you know, CJ is CJ? Or as the one who's a little bit older, does he uh, have more of a exposure to, to those basic social ideas about boys should be boys and girls should be girls? He knows CJ CJ. He's grown up with him, and he's grown up knowing that people can be gender nonconforming. People can be transgender. People are gay. He's seen families of all different makeups. So I think that's what's great about Chase is that he's been exposed to a lot of that, and so he doesn't he doesn't really listen to what society says people should be because he's seen all these different examples. He's really great. He's an excellent big brother. And there was a time when he was confused and he would say, when is CJ going to be more of a brother? When is he going to be more of a boy? And once we explained to Chase that he's gender nonconforming, that we gave him that term, that his brother's gender nonconforming and that there's other kids like him out there and that there's a name for it, he was like, okay, you know, he got it then. And um, we have a gender nonconforming play group that we get together with once a month. And so Chase gets to see all of those kids and all of their siblings. So he's really been brought up that this isn't weird at all it's a little bit different but i'm not even sure he sees it as being different anymore that's wonderful well maybe we'll see a memoir from him someday yeah we've been talking with laurie duran you can find her new book raising my rainbow in stores right now laurie thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks for having me on i'm andrew albanese and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio Next up, PW co-editorial director Jim Milliot tells us about the major publishing house's earning reports from the first half of 2013. And the news is good. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW's co-editorial director, Jim Milliot, has the lowdown for us on publisher earnings from the first six months of 2013. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Glad to be with you. Always nice to have you here. So uh, what's the news? Is it good news? It is, in fact, uh, good news, and I think it... uh points up once again that the beleaguered publishing industry isn't quite as beleaguered as um, some would have us think. Um, we took a look at uh, earnings from six publicly traded companies and earnings went up in all but one of them. So I think that's a, a good indication that um, publishers are, are making sense out of this uh, digital transition. Now, we had Rachel Deal in here a couple of weeks ago talking about the, the Random House-Penguin merger. Do these numbers influence that at all and influence how that'll go, or do they indicate something about how it might go? Um, well, actually, yeah, it was kind of fun that uh, it was their last uh, period reporting separately. Mm-hmm. So uh, Penguin actually did a little better than Random House, um, and it certainly does point towards uh, the colossal that is Penguin Random. Um, but you know the random house performance was notable because although sales went down, earnings went up, and as everybody I'm sure knows, they're competing against last year's uh, Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. Right. So the fact that they managed uh, to boost earnings on a small uh, dip in revenue was uh, was pretty impressive. Well, Fifty Shades is still selling though. It's still selling, um, but certainly it, not like it was. Not like it was. I mean, they did benefit from. Inferno and Gone Girl still selling, and they had a couple of uh, good titles across across the world. Um, but you know, it, it was tough to replace uh, all the Fifty Shades. 
So which publishers did the best, and what was the one unlucky publisher that uh, did not post great numbers? Um, well, Penguin actually, uh, if you look at all things, did probably the best on the top line. Simon & Schuster uh, ended up doubling their profits, but some of that, as you well know, Andrew, <laughs> was because uh, last year they had some costs associated with their uh, lawsuits in the ebook price-fixing case, so that, that got wiped off the boards uh, this time around. Um, the, the company that did uh, saw their profits go down but are still making a fair amount of money was Harlequin. Um, they've been hit uh, a little bit harder than some uh, overseas in, in the print side of things. And their digital sales, they were in early. Um, so they've been growing a little bit slower than some of the others. But they did report that um, print in the U.S. Was, was stabilizing a bit, which is a, a trend you're starting to see, I think, more and more. I mean, Simon & Schuster also mentioned, uh, you know, a more firm and uh, rational print, print environment. So, you know, I, I think we're seeing uh, the, the hybrid model that people have talked about coming to fruition. One of the numbers that jumped out at me was that at Penguin Group in the USA, digital sales made up 33% of revenue in the first six months of the year. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, they're one of the leaders in, uh, in generating revenue. That also includes some audio. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the highest percentage that we've seen. SNS is around 29%. Um, Harlequin was like 27, and Houghton Mifflin, um, which we included here, even though it's a little bit smaller, their digital ratio actually went down. Uh, they bought uh, some Wiley assets, including a lot of cookbooks, and cookbooks, as most people probably know, aren't big in the digital world yet. Right. So last year at six months, digital was about 18%, and this year it fell down to 16. But as the numbers show, their print grew a lot and their earnings also more than doubled. So nobody's complaining about uh, where the digital's headed. I, I like how you say, yeah, that cookbooks aren't big in digital yet. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely starting to see a little trend toward that in my household. You know, half the time we pull out a cookbook and we have like a physical print book there. And the other half of the time we've got a recipe up on my partner's iPad and we just you know, prop it up against the wall and treat it like a cookbook. Well, one of the, that's one of the issues that you bring up is why cookbooks aren't quite as digital as some others, is that it's easier just to download a recipe. Mm -hmm. So I mean, in our, in our case, we're we're going by Cooks Illustrated, so we're still right, paying for it. Right, I mean, right. Well, that's good. I think it's probably <laughs> about the only website I actually pay money to because uh, their stuff is so good. Right, and the cookbook publishers are experimenting with different kinds of uh, ways to sell the cookbooks and recipes by recipe. I mean, they could if they want. They've been a little reluctant to do that, but. Uh, we're starting to see uh, some more push in that way. And it's also the illustrated nature of, of a lot of cookbooks. Illustrated books are still not you know, doing too well in digital, uh, despite the growth in tablets. And we wrote, Calvin had a piece a couple weeks ago talking about the problems that a lot of the illustrated um, book publishers have had in, in going digital. And as, as they say, you know, they're ready to go. It's just that they're waiting for the, the market to come to them. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about print in the kitchen, my wife's a food writer and a food editor, and uh, you know the iPad just doesn't take being dropped in flour very well. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely true. But you know it raises the issue. You mentioned the hybrid uh, digital and print. Um, how are print sales doing through all of this generally? You say they're starting to to stabilize. Yeah, it looks that way. Um, you know, flat is the new up has been the mantra for a little while now. <laughs> um, 
and it, it is running you know neck and neck with last year and you throw on top uh, the, the sales of digital and you're getting a little even to up while uh, print is you know down so you, you kind of it's kind of a wash and as we, we keep seeing though the profits you know are, are pretty healthy and it does show what people have speculated as this whole thing got going that digital publishing could be in fact more profitable than print we take out all those manufacturing costs and nasty returns that's a interesting point and I, I've noticed over the past few reports that there's sort of a trend merging where you're seeing modest dips in revenue and big jumps in profit is that a fair assessment yeah, yeah no it is absolutely you know something well big jumps could be uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe term. Big jumps, but, jumps. but I mean uh, yeah, the profit levels are, are, are holding very steady it's it's worth noting because a lot of people are, are equate what could happen in book publishing with what happened to music and uh, especially music a little bit of movies that it's just going to get all digital and everybody's profits going to roll and they're going to be scrambling to say survive you know and that really hasn't happened I, I think most publishers think we're through the worst of it in terms of digital transition um, they have a handle on where they want to go and while there's still plenty of challenges out there including what's going to happen to the bricks and mortar stores um, they're feeling a lot more confident than they were a few years ago I'm definitely seeing more innovation in individual books. A friend of mine just released a short story or, or a, a novel and said there's a, in the print edition, there's a bonus short story and you don't get that bonus in, in the ebook. Uh, and, and I think it's interesting to see people experimenting sort of the way that um, musicians did experiment with including CD extras or that you might get DVD extras uh, if you get the DVD of a movie rather than downloading it right. or watching it online. No, I think that's true. And, you know, on Monday or Tuesday, uh, uh, Amazon announced their Kindle Matchbook program, which is the latest effort to get ebook and print book bundling going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in this case, you buy, if you bought the print book, going as far back as when Amazon started, um, they'll give, well, not give you, they'll sell you the ebook for price ranges from two ninety nine to Amazon's favorite level of free. Um, <laughs> so we'll see how that works. I mean, they, they're supposedly starting with about 10,000 titles. So we've talked to some publishers who aren't part of the program, and not too many are at this stage, and they are lukewarm at best. Um, I feel like that describes publishers whenever you ask them what they think <laughs> of anything Amazon's doing. <laughs> well, um, one of their big worries is that you know by selling it at two ninety nine, they're devaluing the ebook uh, right. and cheapening the whole content proposition. So it's gonna. A lot of people do think bundling is a good thing, um, but it looks like it might need a little more fine tuning before it takes off. But you know, with Amazon behind it, you know, we're not going to count that out. Certainly, good news that the first six months have been strong. Usually it's the, the holiday season that makes a big impact for publishers' bottom lines, and that's coming up. Without a Fifty Shades of Grey this year, that at least I can't see one on the horizon, or a Hunger Games, how are we thinking the the second six months of the year are going to be looking? Actually, uh, not too bad, because a lot of the Fifty Shades uh, impact was uh, through this summer. I mean, it did sell at the holidays, but it's not your typical holiday <laughs> um, and you know and there's a lot of Kennedy books out there that people think could do well on the 50th anniversary the mm -hmm. economy's getting better 
So, you know, those new kings, a lot of new fiction will be coming along. So, I, by and large, uh, they're, they're pretty optimistic, um, you know, as long as retail hangs in there. All right. Well, thank you so much for that roundup, Joe. It's uh, good to get a little bit of a, a forecast also. Yeah, glad to do it. Always nice to have you on the show. And that's it for today's show. I'm Andrew Albanese. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We love to hear from our listeners. So drop us a note at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet us at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. And we're also on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 